Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. You and you alone are the only one it is worthy given our lives to. Pray, take your word this morning and let it just do its work in every heart that is represented here. You know where we all are, Father. Meet us where we need you to meet us. We ask in your name. Amen. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse from Genesis to Revelations. We are currently in the book of 2 Samuel. We'll be finishing chapter 15 this morning. This is verse 17. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the last house. The story of David's life from Jerusalem is punctuated by incidents that we might call people who met David. The importance of each of these encounters lies in how King David dealt with each person concerned and that person's response to the king. In the next couple of weeks, as we follow David leaving Jerusalem, we will see him crossing the Kidron Valley, climbing the Mount of Olives and heading east towards the wilderness. And in doing so, we're going to encounter six people who meet David. In order, we will meet Ittai, who stayed with David, Zadak and Abiathar, who served David, Hushai, who was David's friend, Ziba, who appeared to be on David's side, Shimei, who cursed David, and finally, Abishai, who got it completely wrong. I love verse 17. The New American Standard says that David stopped at the last house. David the shepherd is going to make sure that the last sheep is out of the fold and safe. That brings me a great deal of comfort. You may be thinking, why would that seemingly insignificant event produce peace in me? The reason is, I know that David is a good shepherd, but he is not the greatest shepherd. Hebrews 13.20 says this, Now the God of peace, who brought up the dead from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I believe that if a person is truly regenerated, they can have complete confidence that the greatest of all shepherds will make sure that absolutely every last sheep will make it into heaven's fold. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says this to God the Father, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, 
which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them have perished. Jesus is truly the great shepherd of which David is only a shadow. But the disparity between David and Absalom could hardly be more stark at this point. David is showing concern over his people that he loved, while Absalom is just using them as pawns to set up his kingdom. Verse 18, please. Then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, along with the Skintites, and the Budlites. Just seeing if you were listening, just checking. It's early. Anyway, it was the 600 men who had followed him from Gath that passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go I know not where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. As David left Jerusalem, he paused at the city limits and looked around at the company of people who had followed him in his moment of rejection. And whom did he see? A great company from the people of Israel? No, they were mostly against him. Instead, he saw a group of rough, rugged Philistines, all of them 600 foreigners, headed up by Ittai from Gath. Now, they had started following David 30 years earlier, and so many of these men are older by now. And that means that some of these men have been following David for almost four decades. O Lord, give me friends like that. Now, please remember, all these men are Gentiles. Most of the Jews have turned on him, but the Gentiles remain faithful. It would seem from verse 20 that although a commander, Ittai had just arrived yesterday, but has already been put in charge of his brethren. And although David's words were addressed to Ittai, they included the 600 Gittites in what he said. These foreigners, who were already exiles from their homeland, had no obligation to join him in his exile. Think about it. They were already exiles. It did not seem right to expect them to become exiles from their exile. Verse 21, please. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, Surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. This Gentile's testimony and fidelity to David in verse 21 is one of the great confessions of faith of faithfulness found in Scripture and ranks right up there with Ruth the Moabitess. By the way, you can always tell who your true friends are in a moment of crisis. 
your true friends will stick with you even in the most difficult of times. There's a great story about an English newspaper who offered a reward for the best definition of a friend. The definition that won said this, a friend is somebody who comes in when the rest of the world goes out. I don't know if you could say it any better than that. And there is another part to the sermon that these, this rugged crowd preaches to us, and it is self-sacrifice for the purpose of the king. Their declaration of loyalty was no lighthearted promise given when David was a political hero. Far from it. Their pledge wasn't even given in a moment of enthusiasm when everything was going right. In fact, it was given when everything was going wrong. It was commitment in the time of rebellion, when David's kingship amounted to nothing and his authority was virtually unrecognized. At that time, they offered the sacrifice of their lives for the king's sake. Why would they do that? They just believed that it was right to be with David, the true king, instead of Absalom. That it was better to be with the few who followed the king than with the crowd who rejected him. Does that sound familiar this morning? It should, because that is the world that we now live in. It is still better this morning to be with the few who follow the king than with the crowd who rejects him. Around 300 years after the crucifixion of Christ, there was a man named Anastasius who also was a man who wouldn't back down. He was falsely accused. He was exiled five different times. He was called to stand all alone before emperors. On one such occasion, one emperor said to him, The world is against you, Athanasius, as if to say, Why don't you just give up? Everybody is against you. Athanasius boldly replied, Well then, Athanasius is against the world. That is the kind of obedience that Christ wants today. Perhaps it would be good to ask ourselves the question this morning, whose side are we really on? Self-sacrifice for the purpose of the king involves identity with his will and with his way, even at the cost of refusing to listen to other claims that might be legitimate or pleasing, but which are not his will for us. Because when our rejected king returns one day, those who shared in his sufferings, those who have been identified with him in his rejection, those who have followed him right through whatever that path might have been for their lives, they are the ones that will reign with him forever. And so these former enemies are now faithful subjects. So too with the greater than David, Jesus Christ. Those of us who were once enemies and alienated from the life of God, are now not only faithful servants, but we are now amazingly sons and daughters. Who am I talking about? If you are a Christian this morning, 
I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about me. Verse 23, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. A little over 2,000 years ago, the darkest day in the history of the world began. It was well into the night, probably the wee hours of the morning. Jesus has just went out with his disciples from the city of Jerusalem, crossed the brook Kidron in the valley on the east side of the city, and climbed to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley. Within 24 hours, Jesus would be dead. Centuries earlier, King David had left Jerusalem accompanied by those who were with him, also crossed the Kidron Valley, climbed up the Mount of Olives. And I also think this was probably the darkest day of his life. And in that momentous short walk across the Kidron Valley, King David anticipated the footsteps of Jesus about a thousand years later. As Jesus led his disciples out of the city across the Mount of Olives, he was following the footsteps of King David. And so we could say the sufferings of David anticipated and illuminated the sufferings of the son of David, Jesus Christ. Now the only reference to the book Brook Kidron in the New Testament is John 18.1, where we read of Jesus and his disciples crossing the Brook Kidron. And so the reference appears to be a deliberate allusion to the account of David's departure from Jerusalem. You see, outside the eastern gate of Jerusalem, there is a small valley. In Bible days, the brook Kidron flowed through this valley. And the word Kidron means dark. And the reason that it's called dark is because the brook Kidron was where much of the waste and sewage would be emptied out of Jerusalem. And the temple waste also poured into the Kidron. And what that means is, at the time of Passover, when thousands of lambs would be sacrificed, the brook would take on a blood-red color. And so, in John 18, we see the son of David, Jesus, also leaving Jerusalem, and having the masses against him, also experiencing rebellion and being betrayed by one who he cared about, even Judas Iscariot. He left and crossed the same brook that David is crossing over. However, when Jesus crossed the brook Kidron on the night of the Last Supper, it was right at the time of Passover. Thus, he crossed over a river running red with the blood of sacrificed lambs. This is emblematic and symbolic of what he was to endure on the cross a short time later. The great son of David wanted, so to speak, to walk in David's footsteps, and likewise was also rejected by the people. And even as Jesus crossed over the Kidron and went up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, we see David preceding him to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. He weeps on the Mount of Olives just like Jesus did. Verse 24, please. There was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. David knew, as his words and conduct would soon show, the disaster had come upon him, and it was both the wicked work of Absalom and the righteousness of God. I think David is accepting this as his punishment for his sins of adultery and murder. Long before what the theologians call the doctrine of sovereignty, David understood this full well. Nathan had told David that although God had completely forgiven his sin, that someday his kingship would have to pay the consequences of that one steamy night with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. That time has now arrived. I won't belabor the point, but I believe if we could ever just step back from temptation and compare the pleasures of sin which are pleasurable, but they only last for a season, and it is an awfully short season, if we could compare that with the misery and the heartache that we have to endure, I think we would all sin less. I mean, it's just not worth it. It's kind of like eating a peanut buster parfait. Let me explain. I love peanut buster parfaits. I enjoy them immensely for about four minutes. Now, the downside of that four minutes of bliss is the following day, in some perverted, evil way, those 12 ounces of parfait somehow exponentially explode to six pounds of unseemly fat overnight. And I now have to carry that up and down the hills of my mail route. This is just for me. Uh, I'll be glad that when you get to heaven, ice cream, that's just health food. But David tells them to take the ark back to the city. So we see that uncertainty about what the future held was tied to an absolute surrender to the will of God. Now whether or not David would join the ark back in Jerusalem was a matter solely for the Lord in David's mind. When you read David's exile psalms, you can't help but see the trust that he had in God. And his conviction was that no matter how disordered and disturbed everything was, the Lord was still on his throne. No matter how David felt, he knew the Lord would always keep his covenant and always fulfill his promises. Take the ark back to Jerusalem, David said to Zadok. If God wants me to survive, he'll bring me back to the city in due time, and I'll see the ark again. But if he wants to destroy me in the wilderness, so be it. I want that kind of heart. 
Lord, if you want to bring me back to Jerusalem, then so be it. But Lord, if that is not your purpose, I accept that as well. I wonder if Jesus remembered these very words from David when he prayed not far from this spot. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This heart is sadly lacking in many Christians today. It seems we're always trying to tell God what to do and trying to manipulate him through the exercise of our faith. Oh, for a heart that would say, not my will, but yours be done. Can I tell you something that annoys me? I'm going to tell you anyway. Sometimes when people are going through trials and troubles, they say something to the effect of this. I'm not worried. God's got this. Now, I understand the sentiment behind it, but what they usually mean is, whatever the problem I'm going through, God is going to come through exactly the way that I want him to come through. But, what if we have cancer and it's malignant in our major organs? What if all they can do is keep us comfortable for the next six weeks? What if a loved one is raped and murdered? Are we willing to say that God's got this even during those times? Because like it or not, my beloved, God still got this, even if that is the end result. And this is the life of much of the persecuted church today. I can promise you this. None of our persecuted brothers and sisters watch Joel Olstein. Because it's hard to believe you're living your best life now when they are torturing you to renounce your faith. What am I saying? Simply this. This is true faith. To trust ultimately in the goodness and wisdom of God, whatever that might involve. Am I saying that's how I would respond? I don't know. I hope so. That's where I want to be in my Christian faith. I just want us to see this morning that life is hard. We live in a world ruled by the evil one. And it's not going to get better. The Bible says it's going to get worse and worse. And because of that, I want to have a robust faith that is authentic. Look at verse 27 with me. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and you and your sons with you, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David sends the ark and the priests back to Jerusalem. Here we see that David's utter trust in God did not make him passive. David would work for what he believed to be right 
And so he began to put into a place a scheme. Now key players in this scheme would be the two priests and their sons. Because the scheme depended upon all four of them being in the city. They could provide David with vital intelligence of what was going on. Now David's faith was required for the ark to return to the city and his plan to return the priests and their sons to be in the city to all work together. All these aspects were carried out. In verse 30 we see David and his people weeping as they made their way out of the Mount of Olives. A.W. Tozer said, The Bible was written in tears and to tears it will yield its best treasures. David was a strong and a courageous man, but he wasn't afraid to weep openly. Real men do weep, including the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ. But just when you think things can't get any worse in the life of David, Someone comes up and tells David that his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, has also joined up with Absalom to betray him. It seemed like almost everyone that David is trusted in is now turning against him. And the nation as a whole has been duped by Absalom, who isn't half the man or the king that David was. J. Oswald Sanders gives this penetrating insight about leaders. He writes, Often the crowd does not recognize a leader until he is gone, and then they build a monument for him with the stones they threw at him during his life. And so the hits just keep coming. Have you ever had a day like that? When bad news hits you like the waves of an ocean, and just as you are taking a, a breath and spitting out the salt water, another wave crashes into your face. What should we do during those times? We should do what David did. He stopped where he was and he prayed. We hear the pain in David's voice and we'll find expression in many of his psalms. Specifically, Psalm 41.9 has often been understood as a reference to Ahithophel and his treachery. It reads, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus also applied these very words to Judas, the one who betrayed him. But this is a great example of an impromptu prayer that David prays. It reminds me of Nehemiah who said, I prayed to God and then I said to the king. Or how about Peter? As he was sinking, he prayed the shortest prayer in the entire Bible. It was only three short words. Lord, save me. Which is a great prayer, by the way. It has the Lord on one end, salvation on the other, and me sandwiched in between. Verse 32. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. 
And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. As David reached the top of the Mount of Olives, there would have been a clear view of Jerusalem some 200 feet below and behind him. And so what did he do during this most difficult time of his life? Why? He complained, of course. He couldn't believe that after all he's done, after the giants that he's killed, the many times he's spared Saul's life, he's even wrote Psalms that God has somehow allowed him to go through such things. I mean, when bad things happen to me, I say, Lord, this can't be happening I'm, I'm Pastor Bill. By the way, the Lord never calls me Pastor Bill. I'm a saint, but I'm mean little Billy sometimes also. But that's not what it says, is it? It says on quite possibly the worst day of David's entire life, he chose to humble himself and worship God. That is called spiritual maturity and I hope we all desire to have that kind of level of faith. David was weeping, but his weeping did not deter his worship. Perhaps this morning you too are weeping and brokenhearted. Isaiah 61.3 says, God gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Therefore, in times of weeping, I urge you to worship. Fight against the tendency to hold up, to pull back, to feel sorry for yourself. Because it is especially when we feel depressed, discouraged, unloved, or upset, that is exactly the time we need to exalt the Lord. You see, it's one thing to experience God's power when you're facing giants or fighting armies. But it's quite something else when you're watching people tear your world apart. God was chastening David. But David also knew that God's power could help him in the hour of pain as well as the hour of conquest. In Psalm 2 he says, Many are they who say of me, There is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. David recognized that God's loving hand of chastening was upon him. And he admitted that he deserved every single blow. But he also believed that God's gracious hand of power was still at work in his life and the Lord had not forsaken him. Now another character enters, Hushai the Archite. Now most scholars believe that Hushai was an extremely old man at this point. And so in the fugitive life that David was facing, Hushai's presence would have been a burden. David could have said, Look, I really appreciate the offer. I really do. But I'm 60 and feel like 85, and you're like 85 and feel like 106. I love you, but I can't be hauling your carcass all over this desert. How much more useful would you be to me if you stayed in Jerusalem and pretended to switch your allegiance to Absalom 
then in a way that hasn't been worked out yet, Hushai would be in a place to undermine the famously brilliant advice that Ahithophel would give to the usurper. But isn't it amazing that David prays for a way to frustrate the advice of Ahithophel? And almost immediately, the prayers answered as Hushai shows up. I wonder how many times I have prayed to God and he has answered it in what seemed like a coincidence. My spiritual mentor, Glenn Rayner, used to say that when he prayed, coincidences happened, and when he didn't pray, they didn't happen. That was his tongue-in-cheek way of saying that some of our prayers are answered in a supernaturally natural way. But there is no tension or contradiction in biblical thought between asking the Lord to cause something to happen and then working very hard to make that same thing come about. He wasn't like some Christians who lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. The sovereignty of God on which our prayers depend does not undermine human responsibility and initiative. Quite the opposite. David worked to accomplish precisely what he had asked the Lord to do. James says, Faith without works is dead. So David assigned the two priests to be his ears and eyes in Jerusalem and to send him back all the information that would also help him to plan his strategy. David would agree with the counsel attributed to Oliver Cromwell who once said, Put your trust in God, my boys, but keep your powder dry. As we close this morning, we have seen David's darkest day perhaps. So let us appreciate afresh the son of David, whose sufferings were anticipated in David's sufferings, but whose sufferings, unlike that of David, had nothing to do with his own sin, but everything to do with ours. He understood that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and then be killed. Those who join Christ must join him in sufferings, just as Ittai and Zadok has joined David. Let's also remember the exhortation of Romans 8.16 that I would like to close with. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's the qualifier. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And Father, I know this was some hard truth this morning, but we live in a hard time. We live in a society and a culture that is twisted and perverse. And I pray, Lord, that like your word says, we would shine as lights in that place, O oh God, because the darker the place, the brighter your light can shine. Lord, you know everybody's heart in this room. You know where they are with you or if they're even Christians or not. I pray that no one would leave this room without giving their life to you. For those of us who are Christians, Father, strengthen us. Let your holiness be the thing that we desire above all things. We ask in your name. Amen.